go. Hello. Hello. I feel at this point, I always really feel like I do it for Mario. Anyway, hello, all. Welcome to Wednesday Night Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. What do you mean by Mario? The, the, our friend Mario in the chat, oh, who always likes yeah. when we do that. He well, always here. likes the Seinfeld intro. Thank you, Chris. Much appreciated. Good to have you here. Uh, it's a big day. Obviously, this is going to be a very important conversation. Um, you know, yeah. the, uh, this, this has been a group that we've wanted to get for a while simply because labor is the future. If, this we, have, is, if we have one. Well, and this is really going to the source. Like, we're really going to the source. This is like, you know, we're being like journalists almost. Yeah. Oh, this is going to the program. source. So we're ha- there's four people, right, that are coming on. Four guys coming on. That are, that are, um, part of four different of the unions that are part of the railroad union unions that we talk about. I believe there's 12 total. Yes. Yeah. So we're having guys from four of those unions. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. This is a very big deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm not entirely sure, you know, how high up the food chain these guys are and what they, you know, what they know as far as the political stuff, but I'm definitely very interested in hearing about their, work stuff, their labor stuff. Well, what exactly, I think in many ways, does, you know, they have to do politically anyway, as far as I'm concerned, labor is its own, I mean, I don't want to say it's its own, yeah, I mean, I guess in a way it's its own political entity. You know, what they represent is, you know, workers. Right. No, no, no. What I mean is in terms of not what's going on at the in in the room with Joe Biden and that nonsense. Love you, double K. But more in terms of from the worker perspective, not from the management perspective of the union. I mean, it's, I guess we need both. It will be interesting, Rob. It will be interesting. So make sure you smash that like button. Let's get this out there. Uh, There's one story I think we should cover before they come on at nine o'clock. Okay. Which Uh, is, what do you want to chat about? uh, I think it's important to talk about, not because I think the context of the story has any real relevancy here because it's just downright stupid. Because I was just watching something interesting on PBS. That was very oh, yeah. interesting. Well, but I wanted to make like just a quick comment about, I don't know, is that okay? No, talk about this if you want to talk about it. Okay. So I think it's very uh, interesting what happened on social media today, even though I think most of this stuff is completely overblown. Is because that Greta Thunberg? To do that. Yes, it is Greta Thunberg. And so for those of you who obviously are paying attention to the gossip, and I do my best not to, but I think in this case, it's important to talk about it because it isn't so much about what was said. It's about the actions of the individual that a lot of people seem to envy for whatever reason. And that, of course, is Andrew Tate. Um, I think Andrew Tate is more or less the definition of toxic masculinity. I don't even know uh, who that is. Who is that? Who's who's Andrew? T- I don't know who that is. Well, he's he's a former uh, I guess he's like a former uh, like an MMA fighter, I guess, is, is what he did. OK, uh, but he's a very wealthy man, evidently. And so his wealth was made, or apparently a significant portion of his wealth is made by managing an OnlyFans, like a business empire. If you will. Okay, good so for basically, him. basically, well, not necessarily. I mean, again, the one thing you don't necessarily know about OnlyFans, especially because I believe Tate is outside the U.S., is, uh, you know, whether or not there's uh, sexual exploitation and things like that that's going on. That's new, that's That may or may not be, but that's not what we're talking about. Like, stick to the facts of the case. Whether or not this guy was involved in that is not what the point is. And if he wants to make money and OnlyFans, goody for him. Well, Andrew Tate decided to make a, you know, 
tag Greta Thunberg in a post today bragging about how he has 33 cars, including a Bugatti W16 uh, 80-liter quad turbo, which I believe is like $2 million. Uh, my two Ferrari 812 Competizone uh, have 6.5-liter V12s. Uh, I want to know who handles that, because that's about this guy you're talking about. This, this is guy. just a start. Please provide your email address so I can send a complete list of my car collection and their respective enormous emissions. And there's this picture of him with what I'm assuming his is Bugatti. his Bugatti. That's his Bugatti. And so, That's grotesque. That's grotesque. What, and so Greta Thunberg comes back at him with, yes, please do enlighten me. Email me at smalldickenergy at getalife.com. <laughs> see that that was from her i just saw this <laughs> now let's keep in mind now let's keep in mind because i think this is very relevant to that's the story. awesome sauce that's what's, awesome sauce so what's very relevant here is the fact that andrew tate is about is almost 37 and greta thunberg is 19 so and also on the spectrum by the way Greta's on the spectrum. Uh huh. Oh, I didn't even know. She's that. so. This is somebody on on a spectrum that that generally ha has people having like social issues and stuff. I gotta say, Greta, you're on it. <laughs> like this guy is such a douchebag. Well, to say small that dick energy. Good for you, Greta. Yeah, and to say that you know uh, he's a douchebag would be an understatement so because funny. the guy has a history of saying very despicable things regarding how to deal with women, including physically assaulting them. Uh, but why people feel that this is a guy that you want to gravitate to. Yeah, I get it. He's a tough guy. He fights and things like that. But there are lots mm. of guys who fight and do it because it's their career. It's what they do, you know, it, with people their own size and, you know, weight. If you <laughs> this will. guy. Woo. But this guy, I'm <laughs> this telling dude. you, he's got a, he has got an endless supply of the type of language that is so it's coercive. It's good call on her, her yeah. part. And I'm the last person to The first say, thing I think when I see that is small penis. Well. That's the first thing that comes to mind with this guy. Even if you have one, but the fact that he says, I've got a fleet of cars that are gas guzzlers. It's like, what are you trying to put? Like, she's just being a dick. Just being a dick. <laughs> yeah. And that is certainly something he's made a very big habit out of. Uh, yeah. Agreed, yeah, it's Karen. gross. It is, uh, it is gross. Uh, but the problem is, is that there are a lot of men out there that, for whatever reason, one way or another, find Andrew Tate peeling. They find his brand of. There's a lid not, for every pot. Yeah, but the problem is, is that there's a lot of people who who envy him, who think that he's. There's a lot of people that envy Elon Musk. There's a lot of people that listen to people like Ben Shapiro. There's a lot of people that are yeah. that enjoy listening and respecting douchebags. I don't know why. They need leadership, I guess. These people need leadership and they look at their own little weakling selves and they seek that out and someone else who's weakling like them and has somehow made money by being so. I don't know. All of those people, I feel like those are all people that need to be punched in the vagina. When I think of people like Elon Musk and, and just people Andrew like there's Tate? him, I don't even, again, I don't even know who that is other until just now. Well, again, I could, like ben I said, Shapiro I could definitely could punch him in the vagina. Well, Ben Shapiro is definitely overcompensating. <laughs> That's sure. what I'm saying. That's my but point. But somebody like Andrew Tate, who is a, who was a successful fighter in his own right, uh, has certainly evolved, or is it devolved would be the right word, into the worst form of human scum as far as I'm concerned. He's all about the excess. He's, again, he's a braggadocious type of Trump, only in this case he brags about hurting women. Uh, so, so what we're saying is, yeah. is that... A misogynistic 
like basically bully yes is does fighting for a living yes i get that and that's why like yeah and let me say people who it doesn't matter the kind of person honestly who wants to do that kind of fighting that's a certain kind of person just like it's a certain kind of person who wants to go into law enforcement or certain kinds there's certain kind of people that seek out certain types of careers and especially when you're past the hobby point at the hobby point I kind of get that to some extent, but when you get past the hobby point, you're in, you're in that for a very particular reason. But the whole thing, again, what, what is the purpose of trying to get Greta Thunberg's attack of all the people you want to pick on a teenager? This is, this is a very, very like misogynistic person. This is somebody who just does not like women. And do you think that that is akin to somebody who's a closet homosexual? To oh, I'm not going to guess on his. I'm just saying I can't tell you what his reasons for being an anti-woman are, but he is. He's but just I a misogynist. Think, but I also think that there's a lot of men out there that do hate women and I th- or, or don't like the fact that they haven't had success with women. And they they see Andrew Tate as sort of a, a vessel, if you will, for their emotional feelings towards women. So they see him as basically saying the things. That this they is a very, very small and insecure man. And anybody who would be taunting a teenager who's done nothing but been an environmental activist and a net positive for the world, and that's who you're picking a fight with, speaks volumes. Like, to me, that's a very small man. And if you had... I I don't know what more to say. And if you had one, if you had one Bugatti or just one gas-guzzling car and you're like, first of all, the fact that you even felt the need to try to get her attention is just pathetic. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you have one, maybe two of these cars that you've spent apparently millions of dollars on, but no, that's not enough. I have to to let you know that I have a fleet of these cars. (laughs) I have a fleet because again, I'm so insecure. I have no real substance. I have to live with- a fleet of cars. Okay, vanity. Vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. (laughs) And there's no question that Andrew Tate is all vanity because he has no substance. Clearly. Let me show you all these fancy toys that I have. And yes, they are fancy. Whatever. But this is, of course, relevant to the degree that, you know, he's um, somebody who's got a very large platform. And apparently shitposting is just something that you know, rules the day in many instances. But as one would point out, it has very little, if any, relevance whatsoever to exactly. the real orders of the day. Double K's, right? There are many more serious issues that, you know, we have to deal with. And that, of course, is the fact that we have a labor movement that continues to try to find its direction. And right now we're looking at a situation where, you know, the railroad workers are more or less caught in the you know, the eye of the storm, if you will, because the whatever semblance of a labor movement we have right now is kind of scattered in a whole bunch of different places. And so ultimately, we're trying to bring all of those people together. You know, it's that's by design that we're not supposed to know what's going on. Like, we're not supposed to know. I, I definitely agree. we're not supposed to know that however many 200 plus Starbucks have unionized um, in how short of a period of time, I forget, like in how long, it's like I mean, 200 it's, or something. Like yeah. That. But in a, a pretty short period of time. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're not, we're not supposed to know this because if people know that they'll start getting ideas. Yeah. And God forbid people got ideas about how to actually collectively uh, build labor. I got to tell you, I have some ideas. 
You do. I do have ideas. Well, um, you'll have to share it with the gentleman. I'm just not somebody that is in, you know, I'm not in the labor community. I'm a labor sympathizer. So I have ideas, but it has to like be an organic labor thing. I am a supporter of the labor movement. That no, is my. I've, well, I've, I've done manual labor and I think everybody should do manual labor, quite frankly. Well, I mean, I it, yes, I, I understand that. I'm currently not engaged in manual that community. Labor. Correct. Or any really. Fair enough. I mean, really, I used to do, look, I waited tables. I've done a lot of things that was, you know, like that. But no, currently in my current incarnation, I'm not. But I am very sympathetic. I come from labor people. My poppy was a mailman. Yeah, we're living in a world today where it's much more difficult simply because it used to just be that people were kind of chastised for not having a job or just not working. Right. Uh, in this case, we're living in a world today where people actually criticize people for, yes. n- for, for having a job that they deem is not good enough. Uh, I can't fathom a world where people think Because like it that. makes so much more sense for them to go into lifelong debt to go get a four-year degree for something that they won't be able to use. That makes so much more sense than having like, you know, a job where you're actually doing something. Well, needless to say, this is a conversation that I think we're really looking forward to. And we are going to bring in our first guest, uh, most of the panels here. But I want to bring in the gentleman that made this all possible. He is somebody who I've had the pleasure of speaking with and think extremely highly of, um, as I would for most people that are obviously fighting the good fight. But especially in the labor movement right now, we need the type of leadership that is going to be presented here as part of Railroad Workers United. And that, of course, is Ron Kamanico. I hope I said it right. Ron, welcome to Generational Change. He's having, okay. we're having audio. Your audio's off, Ron. Your audio's off. Make sure off. your audio's on. He looks like he's in a cabin. He's in Reno. He's in Reno. He's in, looks like he's in a cabin. We're not getting audio. Yeah, there should be a, a, a on or off button. Yeah, there's something. All right. Let's do you want to like, do you want to, how do you want, you want to bring in some, like, let's bring in some other people and just start. I mean, I, we need to get, um, wait, now you're muted. Now you're unmuted, but something is not right with the audio. Ron, can you hear us? Give us a thumbs up if you can hear us. Yeah, he okay, hears so us. Can hear us. Okay. So let's see. I don't, it's not us because people are on. All right. So we'll, we, we will work on that. Uh, if need be, Ron, if you want to potentially log out and log back in again, uh, I'm not sure what the audio issue is on your end. But in the meantime, we are going to fill in this panel. And of course, the first gentleman we are going to recognize is somebody from the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division. And that, of course, is Matt Weaver. Welcome to Generational Change. Hello, you guys. Can you hear me? Yes, we can definitely hear you. How are you? Not too bad. How about yourself? We're good. Where are you? Where are you from? Where are you? What part of the country? I am just east of Toledo, Ohio, where you know CNO Toledo Terminal, NYC PRR railroads all come. It's a nice little railroad area here. 
I'm actually familiar with that railroad because I once stayed at a bed and breakfast in Sandusky and we checked into this place and there were earplugs on the sides of the bed. And I was thinking, that's so cute. Why? That's so considerate. How do they know that my husband snores? No, no. It was for the train that came through at like three times through the middle of the night, literally shaking the entire bed and breakfast. But anyway, I digress. So I'm very familiar with the trains in that area. Absolutely. That's the old <laughs> NF in Western there. Yeah, it is. We're going to bring in as well a gentleman who is a retired engineer from BNSF, Jeff Kurtz. Welcome to Generational Change. Your audio is off, Jeff. Your audio is off, too. How's that? Can you hear me? There we go. There we go. Okay. Okay. Okay, so we can, I mean, let's just, I mean, you you have like a serious list of like to do to talk items that you want to hit. Yeah, you know, this is definitely, I mean, obviously, you know, Ron, I'm sure we'll be on in a minute. And of course, we're also um, expecting one other gentleman uh, to join us, Nick Wirtz. Hopefully we'll be here shortly. And so guys, obviously this has been a very, uh, it's been a very difficult few weeks to say, a few months, I should say, to say the least, you know, dealing with this whole negotiating back and forth. So I guess, uh, why don't we start with, what what brought this about in terms of at least attempting to you know try to do something substantial regarding your labor rights? It shouldn't even be a question that railroad workers should have paid sick leave. <laughs> Seems kind of silly to even think about, oh but needless to say, uh, we do not live in a country right now that really values labor as much as we like to claim that we do. So try to make that significant change is obviously going to take a series of battles, but. What was the impetus for you guys to sort of band together and realize, yeah, we got to start taking control of our situation because the labor movement has been quite dire for some time? Well, I wholeheartedly believe Crosscraft solidarity is the key to winning um, national negotiating. Um, we've had separate coalitions all along uh, in my whole career in 1994, and we always the divide and conquer tactics by the railroads are strong. Um, so it came around where we were collectively by the AFL-CIO Transportation Trades Division or Department. And uh, it was a nice thing to be under the same umbrella. Um, and uh, then as they started offering um, different items with the PEB recommendation came out, crafts, signed on, ratified piecemeal here and there. And that, that seemed to hide us again. Um, and then as negotiations and our timeline moved, um, we were, uh, the, the contract was imposed. And it's very unfortunate because we have no paid sick days. And leading into this pandemic, we were told essential. And we were given, I was given, <coughs> even last week with a snowstorm, I would have said, if you're pulled over during a weather emergency, level three snow emergency routine, show the officer this paperwork and say that you're essential to get commerce moving Ohio area. Um, and then we're at the bargaining table and we go from essential to ex just with a look at a ticker tape, you know, just like that. The shareholders all, they're not worth that much. I can't imagine how we've come to the point where you know, you've seen for so many years sort of the uh, everything that's transpired since Reagan fired the air traffic controllers on August 20th, 1981. And it's just basically been this long, endless nightmare of trying to get some semblance of 
a labor movement in this country because as of right now, we don't really have, we, I mean, we could have one, but it's kind of broken up right now. And I see this as if we don't unite around the railroad workers, then when are we ever going to unite? I feel so infuriated from what you were just saying, actually. So you're not essential. They, they, they don't think you're. Oh, I think you should show them how essential you are. See, let me tell I think. Oh, I think it would be glorious. I think everybody should be so madly inconvenienced and realize who really is essential. That's what I think. And that's where I really am excited about teachers who are stepping up, coming together and making great leaps and bounds labor. Um, I would like to see rail labor follow in their steps and, and come together. Solidarity is the key to uh, working class power. And we seem to have lost that in the divide and ship where we they have us fighting each other. Yeah. Jeff, Ron, your thoughts? Well, um, I, I would just like to say, talking to our local people around here, it's not even the sick days that are, are the big stumbling block. It's getting days off, period. I mean, we've, we've had people penalized for things like getting in a, in a car wreck. A, a guy was a mile from work. A woman that had no license, no insurance, ran out in front of him, totaled his car. His supervisor wouldn't let him come to work. He was penalized for that. We've had people that were penalized because their kids were sick and they wanted to be with their kids. Um, one gentleman, his uh, son had a collapsed lung. He was in the hospital and uh, they were not going to hear of him taking off work for that uh, because it was Super Bowl weekend. So th this this fight is more, it, it comes down to more basic things than just sick pay. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we've got, uh, what, when I was working, I was head of our legislative department. We did a lot of work as far as uh, health and safety, what the hours that we work do to the people that, that work them, uh, you know, being on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, what that does to a person as far as fatigue, as far as stress. And we've seen that around here since the implementation of BNSF high-vis. We've, uh, we've actually had four people die. We've had two people die on an engine, one from a stroke, one from a heart attack. Um, a young man, he was a local chairman, which would be a, uh, the equivalent of a, um, uh, of a uh, chief steward. Uh, he was 49 years old. He died in his sleep. Um, probably because of, of the hours he works, uh, had another young man commit suicide. This can all be traced back to uh, the conditions that these people are working under. So th this is this is more basic than just getting paid sick days. You're actually suggesting that people should treat workers like humans. <laughs> and I, I have this thought that people should get time off because of like www.noneofyourbusiness.com. Like, yeah. I don't, I really, this is very infuriating. And none of this surprises me, by the way. Like, I'm not remotely surprised by this, but just very disgusted. Ron, do you have audio now? Can we hear you? Uh, you tell me. Yay! Yeah! Audio! Yeah! yeah.
Now something happened. Now something went away. How about now? There Next you go. Time. There you go. So you're, please run. Okay, sorry about that. That's uh, no, all good. I'm not sure what the original question is, but listen. Well, to just talk about talk your about the yeah. your entry into like where this started when you all sort of started coming together in in this most recent. I mean, it's been going on for a couple of years though, right? Like this last negotiation. Yeah, and as some of the media coverage in recent months has made clear, there was a great article, and I forget which outlet put it. This, this is 30 years in the making, and um, I hired him with the industry about the same time Matt did back in the mid-90s. And at that time, I was amazed at the conditions of employment in terms of train and engine craft. Uh, you just worked. Uh, but at least you could mark off when you wanted to, when you had had enough. And there were times where I would mark off for a week. I didn't get paid, uh, but I didn't get disciplined either. And that's all gone away. And so the crux of the matter is that working people more and more have come to the conclusion that you have the right to make a living and you also have the right to a life as well. Like what a novel concept. A hundred years ago, there was a strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and they called it the bread and roses strike. And the women took to the leadership of the strike. And they basically said, of course, we strike and we fight for bread, but we want roses too, which is to say we, we want a life. We want to live. We want to have time with our family, friends, time to develop ourselves as human beings. Uh, and this is what the eight hour day fight was about, starting in 1886. Uh, you know, and the, the famous demonstrations all over the world where labor came together and united with the understanding that if any worker was to achieve an eight hour day, that most likely we would all need to achieve it. And so this this quality of life has all of a sudden propelled to the forefront as the big class one rail carriers have pushed and pushed and pushed for three decades now, well, longer actually, and have taken away and taken away more and more manpower, have greater and greater expectations from Wall Street that everyone who's on the payroll shows up to work and not just to work 30 or 40 hours a week, but 50, 60 or 70, uh, because Wall Street doesn't like more workers on the payroll than absolutely necessary. And so we're in this situation and then throw the pandemic into the mix and you heard for three or four months, finally, it was music to all of our ears that people who stock shelves in grocery stores are essential. People who picked up your trash are essential. And people who worked on the railroad, these are essential workers, not just out of some jingoistic uh, expression, but without us, nothing else works. Like the great song, Solidarity Forever, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. And in the case of the railroad industry, literally, and if those wheels aren't turning, nothing else is gonna happen. Well, we all took this to heart, you know, whether you were teachers or, or a trash collectors or store shelf stockers, railroad workers or what have you. And by God, if we're essential and the economy can't do without us, then what in the hell are we doing coming to work when we're sick? What the hell are we doing being told that we're essential when in fact, 
you're treating us like we're disposable. And so I think a number of things came together here in the last few months that convinced railroad workers we've had enough and we're not going to take it. Now, we're not ready to go on a wildcat illegal strike uh, against the wishes of both political parties, all three branches of government, some of the most powerful corporations in the world, and our own union leadership. But the fact of the matter remains, the vast majority of U.S. railroad workers were ready, willing, and able to strike. Uh, and it's unfortunate that we actually were not allowed to because I think it would have corrected decades of injustice and actually solved some of the huge problems that are facing the rail industry in this country. As it is, nothing has been solved. And we limp along with a, with a very, very crippled uh, infrastructure in this country. We're speaking with Railroad Workers United, Jeff Kurtz, Ron Kimikau, and of course, Matt Weaver. You know, from my perspective, and I'm looking at this from a couple of things that I saw the other day, which I thought was very important. Number one, I saw a documentary uh, regarding Boeing and how that corporation operated up until they decided to merge with uh, McConnell and Douglas, and that was in the late 90s. And then, of course, uh, we see what's happening right now with Southwest Airlines. And it's just pretty clear to me that the second Wall Street shareholders get their hooks in any line of work, whatever it may be, is when the work will suffer immensely. Because it's all about the bottom line. And the bottom line involves taking from one and passing it off to the other. That's how it works within this system. That's how it works with the shareholders of the railroad workers. And the same is true for any of these other major industries. Can you talk about the effect that Wall Street and perhaps just overall deregulation of these industries has caused to the detriment of the workers, especially in your line of work? And, and that's a, exceptionally true, exceptionally true with uh, precision scheduled railroading, PSR. Hunter Harrison brought that to the end, and it's all profit over people, higher profit margins. Um, doing more with less or lost upwards of 25, 20, 20 percent of their their manpower. The, the, the men and women labor, we've, we've gone from 150,000 to 117,000 rail workers and profit margin went from CP to CN to CSX and then all class one railroads are by the horns. And, and here we are um, doing um, more with and the work. The workforce is suffering. Yeah, it's very interesting to me that you're it's so it's privatized to the point that we're concerned with shareholders. But yet the president can come in and basically just like, you know, shut everything down. So, like, in other words, why why aren't they then capable of subsidizing what needs to happen if your industries are not capable of providing for their own workers? Like, I don't you know, it's, this is very frustrating. Well, what's what's even more ironic is that these captains of industry will tell you, you know, stay out of our business. Let us run our business. But when the workers threatened to go on strike and uh, they, they were on the verge of going on strike, the, the first thing that these people did was use uh, the administration as their human resources and public relations department. You know, they forced everybody back to work. Warren Buffett wrote a letter to the president telling telling, telling the president not to let these guys go on strike. Every railroad followed the same procedure. 
they, you know, were imploring the government, go after these people and, and make sure they don't go on strike. Um, I've been, you know, I, I, I hired out in 1974. I'm a third generation railroader. Um, and I, I, I'll tell you, in 1974, I had a much better job as far as quality of life than these guys have now. So we've got to basically go back to the future because uh, these uh, railroad CEOs and people like Warren Buffett, they figured out how to monetize our grief. Yeah. Yeah, as Jeff is saying, even when I hired in 20 years after Jeff, uh, the old heads, you know, the old railroaders that I would talk to who had been on the railroad for 30 years, 40 years, you know, dating back to the 50s and 60s, uh, they would tell me, they'd say, oh, yeah, you'd never mark off, you know, call in because you didn't want to miss the fun. You didn't want to miss the excitement, the joy of actually railroading. And um, <coughs> granted, things were different in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, the railroad has consistently over my uh time on the railroad has taken, taken, taken back more and more and more. And the irony, especially when it comes to the class ones, is that the rail industry was not always this profitable. There were some lean times in the 60s and 70s. And as the railroad came out of that in the 80s with the operating ratios in the 0.9, then it dropped into the 0.8 range. And then through my tenure and same with Matt uh, into the seven and six. And, and now the target of these class ones is literally uh, a 50% operating ratio. And of course, this doesn't mean much to most people, but all that really means is for every dollar that we take 50 cents profit. There's no other industries in this country that are running at this level of profitability. The trucking industry, Many of the big uh, uh, trucking companies, I believe, are making a 10, 15 percent profit margin. Uh, railroads are up there with real estate and banking. And some circles believe that railroads are the most profitable uh, industry in the country. When Warren Buffett bought BNSF, uh, he realized, holy hell, it's a monopoly. I can't go wrong. It's totally essential to every other industry in this country, especially the movement of fossil fuels, which Warren is into in a big way. Uh, and so it was obvious he was going to make a lot of money. And then five years into it, he announced the BNSF had made him far more money than he ever even realized it was going to make him. And so in this context, the rail industry is moving less freight than it did 16 years ago. And here is really the crux of the matter. If you're a citizen of this country, if you're a shipper, if you're concerned about inflation, if you're concerned about the environment, you should be outraged because rail is the most efficient, the most environmentally sensitive, the safest means of transportation known to humanity. The rest of the world is forging ahead with electrification of railroads and massively uh, infusing capital. I remember a few years ago, Spain announced $40 billion a year investment to link every city in Spain with high-speed rail, which means double-track railroads. In this country, 
There's no double tracking, very limited siding extensions, no electrification. Because the rail industry has figured out that to make short run record profits, you don't do any of that stuff. You simply move less freight, you gouge your existing customers, you provide really poor service to the rest and there's nothing much they can do about it. Um, you cut maintenance, you contract out work, you furlough and otherwise get rid of tens of thousands of other employees and we're on this massive cost cutting treadmill uh, towards super profitability. And so far, it's not it's not sustainable, but so far it's working for them. And the stockholders are thrilled. They made record profits through the Great Recession of 2008. They made record profits right through the pandemic. And so it's it's uh, it's disgraceful. And every American citizen should be extremely concerned about this great resource called the American rail system, the biggest in the world. And yet we are not putting it to very good use. Needless to say, uh, what you guys do is tremendously important, and we are tremendously grateful for what you do. But, Ron, you brought up a really great point. Uh, if there's one thing that significantly hampers us, not just on the, on the uh, home front, but also on the international stage, especially when competing with China, is they are unbelievably ahead of us when it comes to high-speed rail. We have made literally no efforts whatsoever in so many ways in this country to really get on the ball regarding what could be a tremendous boom to the economy. I'm wondering, from all of your perspectives, how much the railroad oligarchs are the ones standing in the way of us having high-speed rail in this country? And if so, what is the motivation for them to stop it from happening? From from what I see, I see that. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry, brother. No, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. I see in Toledo. I see Amtrak being held by at the Diamond. I I see only in uh, Michigan Amtrak own the tracks. You know they run on freight's tracks. Freight gets the often enough on swing bridges. I work on bridges. Um, boats are supposed to get the, no, not really. Trains, moving freight, making money is what the priority is. Privatized, this privatized industry. I see that I keep uh, clicking out. I don't know losing my feed too. Uh, one of the things that uh, I worked on when I was, uh, I, I, with our union, I was the uh, Iowa State Legislative Board Chairman which meant that I was the head of legislative matters and safety here in the state of Iowa, was exactly what you're talking about, the, the high-speed rail and uh, the movement of freight and how we could make it more efficient. We, we did actually do that in the union for a while. We looked at that. And uh, one, of, one of the things that we found was that if we adopted a system of higher-speed rail, not necessarily – the 150 mile per hour and above because you get into things like uh, restricted grade crossing, access separation, uh, where you have to close crossings up. It starts to cost a lot of money to do that, but for a lot less money, we could run 110 mile an hour uh, passenger trains alongside of uh, freight trains. 
at higher speeds. And we, we make the whole system much more efficient for 500 mile trips, which uh, Americans do a lot of 500 mile trips. We could, we could do this for little and nothing. In fact, we might be able to make the system actually pay for itself. Um, and then I was in the state legislature. Uh, I was a state representative here for, for two years. And I could see how we aren't utilizing uh, some of the short line railroads that interchange with the class one railroads because the, the class ones were, were shutting them out. You know, the, the people like Warren Buffett, Jim Foote and uh, uh, Lance Fritz, those people were shutting them out because they wanted to run these trains straight through without stopping in, in the small communities. Well, a lot of these small communities actually became communities because of railroads. And now the railroad has just completely shut them out. So now they're in the process of drying up these communities again. Uh, the, and, and it is, it, it's the short-term money. I think it was the first quarter of this year BNSF ran 16% less freight and they, they made 7% more money and Warren Buffett was thrilled. This is where we are. Yeah. So here's a specific example of where the rail freight rail industry is actively impeding the advancement of passenger rail uh, in this country. Uh, first of all, Amtrak has a skeletal network. Most of its trains operate on freight railroads that are called host railroads. They're not very nice hosts in most cases. The trains are extremely delayed and it has been made worse by precision scheduled railroading, which has as one of its uh, MOs is to run extremely long trains because you get the economies of scale, you use less locomotives and you use importantly, less crews, less labor. And as a result, these big three mile long trains don't fit into sidings and they take up what's called a huge amount of track capacity. So if it was three short trains that all could accelerate quickly and decelerate quickly and could fit into sidings and you could have things called rolling meets where neither train in either direction actually stops but reduces speed and passes each other while in motion, you have a much more fluid and efficient rail network. Well, as we've seen, the rail industry is not necessarily interested in a fluid and efficient, fast-paced rail network. They're interested in short-term profits and that three mile long trains can increase profits, then by God, it's gonna be three mile long trains. So. Let's take a look at the Gulf where Amtrak for years has been attempting to restore service between New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama after Hurricane Katrina knocked out that CSX route, I don't know, 15 or so years ago now. Well, the Norfolk Southern and the CSX, the two big class one railroads in the east, are, have been vehemently opposed. They say, basically, you give us hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, to put in new infrastructure in this railroad, and we will be able to handle those two little teeny tiny sports car trains. I mean, the difference is between like a little MG sports car and a big giant semi. Even that is not the comparison between a four car Amtrak train and a 200 car three mile long freight train. But this is, you know, this is what they're balking at. 
And if you look at the freight moved on that piece of track, there's no more train movements today than there were 15 years ago. So what's the problem? If you look at my piece of railroad that I operate over out here in the Sierra Nevada, there were many, many, many more train movements 50 years ago. I mean, we could go back to steam engine days, for God's sake, uh, with, with uh, unsignaled territory where train operators every 10 or 20 miles along the railroad track handed up paper orders that were caught on the fly by the engineer and the conductor. And, and with every movement over the Sierra Nevada needing a shove by a helper locomotive. So you had dozens and dozens of train movements up and down the mountain. Uh, the railroad today is moving far, far less trains over the Sierra Nevada. But try to run an additional Amtrak train, of course, between the Bay Area and Reno. Uh, and, you know, the host railroad, in this case, the Union Pacific, would say, we simply cannot do that. So it's kind of tragic that it, there was times 50, 60, 70 years ago uh, where you may have had three, four, five passenger trains running in each direction every day, along with uh, dozens and dozens of freight trains. But we can't do that anymore, given the operating model that the railroads are using. So yeah, in answer to your question, uh, the freight railroads, the class ones, are actively mitigating uh, against uh, potential expansion, not just of high-speed rail in this country, but of of any kind of expansion of rail. As we pointed out, it's been almost a generation and they're moving less freight uh, than they did almost 20 years ago. So they obviously have no interest uh, in expanding, but the nation, the, the shippers, the, the industrialists in this country, everybody has an interest in rail expansion, uh, ironically, except the rail industry itself. Right. Well, they're hoarding. I mean, they're 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 hoarding all of it for themselves. Right. I mean, and the fact that they own you're you're saying that they own the tracks. So, yeah. And somebody in the comments, I think it was Chris Garrett, said that we should nationalize this. And I'm starting to think that, yeah, that's obviously what needs to happen here. Like, this is crazy. But that leads to the bigger issue here, which is the workers still hold the power and the workers can still shut down the economy if they have to which I think at this point needs to be done. So I'm curious, obviously we all know that, you know, the <clears throat> president is not a friend of labor. Um, they're, they go to great lengths to try to pretend like he is. Um, obviously that's the power of corporate media and it just sort of that, you know, fast paced social media world. That Do we, we have a labor today. party? Do you see a labor party? I don't see a labor party. Well, I mean, if Bernie got that's, to the White House- Not since the nineties. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I, mean, listen, since, I, I do appreciate I do appreciate the DOT, DOL and FRA appointee. Um, I can't imagine what Trump would have appointed. So I I guess I am tired of voting to evils, but I yearn for a labor party, too. Yeah, if that is trying, if that is the case, then let's say that you guys did collectively decide, OK, that's it. We are going to strike, even if it means breaking the law. Uh, what would that look like? I'm curious as to what the ramifications would be, what the president would do, what the, you know, what the unions would do. Mm -hmm. How would this look if you guys just decided, uh, yeah, we got to we have to do something because if we don't, labor <coughs> is already going down, you know, by the head in this country as, as a whole. 
at what point do you feel that there is sort of this cross solidarity, as you mentioned with the teachers, but it can't just be the teachers, it's the postal workers, it's the nurses, it's it's the AFL-CIO, it's the CWA, it's the SCIU. It's a question of, you know, when does it become a collective labor movement where everyone stands up and says, we're not taking this anymore, we're losing our country literally every day, and we've got to try something, even if it is at the... Uh, at the risk of it ultimately becoming um, a, a serious legal problem. Well, I think it was 1951 or 1952 well, think- when uh, the railroads, uh, when uh, the rail workers threatened to go on strike, wow. Harry Truman threatened to draft all of them. And so I, I think you would see something like that, probably. Uh, you would see something pretty extreme. And it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't take a page out of that book. So that's probably what we would be looking at. I, I personally can't see them allowing this to happen. I mean, it, it, I, I think it would be, um, uh, I, I'm fairly certain, especially with what happened this last time. Um, I, I think the, that uh, the people that actually work out there would be exposed to some pretty dire consequences. I still, I still kind of see it though, as them calling your bluff. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a career and you guys want to protect your careers, but at the same time, there is still this need to make the economy function. And they know that you have the capability of doing things that not anybody, you know, electrical engineers are not just everywhere and people being able to work on the railroads are just not everywhere. So if you had the ability to stop it from happening, uh, I, I think that that could be a very big deal. I also think that there's a lot of people that are starting to get their sea legs regarding the ability to actually uh, form a union and make that so that it's possible regarding, let's say, even something as simple as the Starbucks workers, but maybe something much more significant like Amazon workers. A lot of Amazon products obviously are transported by, you know, obviously regular uh, shipping cars, but at the same time, there's also the railroad industry that plays a role there. And then, of course, I think the biggest uh, and and the worst offenders in the country are the Walton family regarding Walmart. And I would love to see those workers get together in, in whatever capacity is possible. So I am curious as to you know what you guys kind of see as the as sort of the future evolution of this because it does it, it is very scary at this point. We don't have a labor party. We are looking at a possible DeSantis presidency. Wait, wait, wait. We we have Mayo Pete as the Secretary of Transportation for you. So yeah. that that that's on. Really, that's on. Talk about a talk about a political appointment that had nothing to do with actual merit. For the I job. just I couldn't let you not mention that as part of the perfect storm equation. Sure. So I think there's a lot of elements here, and I know it's kind of all over the place. But do you think that a strike is possible? And and whatever capacity that may look like. Uh, I just, I, I am deeply concerned for each and every one of you. I'm deeply concerned for workers all over this country. I have been for a very long time. And I, I despise the Democrats more than the Republicans because the Republicans don't pretend. You know exactly where they stand. They want the Chamber of Commerce. They are on the side of management. Well, except you have like the Trump populist, we do care about labor sort of side. Yeah, but you're not going to get that because neither side gives a shit. Well, yeah. That's the point. Yeah. They're not going to pretend like that. They may feign ignorance of saying that they do, but it's like listening to, you know, I always say the worst type of people in politics are comfortable liberals in the suburbs because for them, they say that they care, 
up to a point. The second you inconvenience them in any way is the second they will throw you to the wolves and say, do as you're told, do not affect my ability to live comfortably. That's what it is for them. And so I worry about your ability, not just right now, but what the future holds if a major stand isn't taken at some point. And if you guys do stand, we will stand with you and we'll bring as many people with you as you possible. Look, I got possible. my vest. I got my vest. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And that is exactly, so that's exact position of the PEB recommendation felt. They were like, oh, pray that you'll disrupt commerce in America. Take this. Yeah. That's the point. If it was convenient, then it that wouldn't that wouldn't count. Then the whole point is to be inconvenienced. I mean, look, the oligarchs have been inconveniencing Americans for the better part of two generations. The policies that were passed, particularly during Reagan's administration and Clinton's administration, have had uh, untold amounts of damage to this country. Whether it starts with obviously firing the air traffic controllers whether it is the removal of the fairness doctrine or the reduction of our top marginal tax rate, whether it is NAFTA and normal trade relations with China, whether it is the Telecom Act of 96, or the ultimate, which still doesn't get talked about enough, is the removal of Glass-Steagall, which just completely gave free reign to Wall Street and the major banks to do whatever they wanted. And they're still doing it now. And it just seems to get worse and worse and worse and everyone knows that it's almost like a sinking ship. It's like we're on the Titanic and we got to get off. And, and there's just too many people that are not recognizing that without labor being strong in this country, we are doomed. We are completely doomed. And you can't drink oil and you can't eat money. At some point, somebody's got to ring you know, the alarm bells and say something's got to be done. Uh, I just don't know who's going to be able to do that. But I do think collectively building a national labor movement, even a national labor council, as we've talked about, I think that's something that could be of great benefit. How do you guys see it? So there's a slogan in the working class movement in the struggle, which says it's our solidarity versus theirs. And if you look at the solidarity that they have, the National Carriers Conference Committee They didn't divide up. They didn't have the different class ones go this way and that way. Also, the Republican and the Democratic Party are more or less in lockstep. The vote wasn't that skewed like it was 30 years ago, but we we didn't actually go on strike. Had we gone on strike, the vote would have been way, way, way more skewed. It was 400 to 5 30 years ago uh, to, to basically break that strike slash lockout in 1992. And so there's a huge amount of solidarity with employers. Uh, The Chemical Shippers Association actually was critical uh, of the rail industry in a rare glimpse at a break in solidarity of the ruling class. Um, But notice that they actually led the coalition of shippers, hundreds of them, that basically said to Biden, you're gonna have to make sure this strike doesn't happen. So even though they kind of let it slip that they wanted the class once to give those proletarians a handful of sick days, uh, when push came to shove, the shippers all lined up 
with the rail carriers, the, the rail carriers that have given them lousy service for years now, they lined up with them. And so we see the solidarity on the part of capital is quite impressive. Now let's look at our solidarity. We have 12 different unions on the railroad. Supposedly we were in one big rail coalition for the first time in history. And the rail unions bragged vociferously about this in June when all 12 were in the same boat. We didn't really have a coalition, it was nonsense. Because as soon as the PEB came out, everyone went in everyone's different direction. And there was some vociferous cries from the rank and file, but we were told very quickly by the union leadership, no, 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 fellas, this is all within the playbook. We had decided in advance, every union has the right to settle on whatever terms it wants, which in effect is saying that every union, every craft, has the right to scab on their fellow workers on the railroad. We have inherited a craft union system that is 150 years out of date. In the 1890s, it was out of date. There was an attempt by numerous railroad union leaders and most of the rank and file at the time to create an alternative vision and an alternative structure called an industrial union where all railroad workers would be together in a railroad workers union. Uh, for various reasons, it failed largely because the solidarity of the ruling class was so powerful. The federal government conspired, sent in troops, shot up a bunch of strikers. They blacklisted ARU members. They arrested the leaders, threw them in jail, confiscated the files and so forth. But that's another story. But the point is, there's not going to be a successful illegal strike at this point on the railroads. We've had successful illegal strikes in this country. Uh, talking about illegality and strikes in the larger uh, context, obviously uh, sitting at Woolworth's lunch counters in Greenboro, North Carolina in the 1960s, in effect was a strike, in effect was illegal, and that changed the way the country run. And as my old friend Ann Feeney, a labor folk singer used to sing, uh, nothing changes when if you don't break the law. And in fact, so many of the laws in this country that once were the law of the land would now be considered quite illegal and immoral because people challenge them. So the miners challenged Jimmy Carter in 1978 and refused to work despite the fact that Carter invoked the Taft-Hartley Act and attempted them to order them back to work. Subway workers in New York City have violated the Taylor Law on three occasions, I believe, in the last 50 years, which says public employees can't strike. We saw Arizona teachers, West Virginia teachers, and I think Oklahoma teachers in the last five or six years engage in illegal strikes. The Postal Workers Union was organized in 1970 through an illegal strike. So it can be effective and it can right a lot of historic wrongs. And we may see an illegal railroad worker strike at some point in the future in this country, but it ain't going to be today or tomorrow. And that's partly because the rank and file and the leadership are not on the same side on this thing. The leadership of our unions wanted this contract, attempted to sell us this contract. And you had a sizable chunk of the rank and file who voted in favor of this contract. You need a consensus. You need to build a majority and you need that solidarity. One of the things that Railroad Workers United has been emphatic about since our existence over the last 15 years is that you need to have all railroad workers united together so that we can act in concert with each other. 
Having these 12 different craft unions all going in their own silly direction is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for weakness and division. It's not a union. We have 12 clubs on the railroad, and that's what people have to understand. A union is all for one and one for all. An injury to one is an injury to all. We don't really have that on the railroad right now, and that's step one. We have to have a unified workforce on the railroad that can act as one. And until we get it, we are going to continue to operate with one hand behind our back. And I would, I'd love to hear Matt Weaver talk a little bit about the all rail craft coalition, uh, which was an attempt to build a sort of a prototype of what could be done potentially inside the rail labor. And that, that was in the, last round of bargaining when I was in the internal organizing um, group of the BMWE. We had all craft staff coalitions around the nation, Kansas City, Toledo, Chicago, uh, Detroit, Miami, San Antonio, uh, across California. Um, and we had at one point in time 11 internal organizers across the nation doing this cross craft sections, um, working with all crafts I mean, I had never seen a fireman and oiler, uh, the local laborers, before I joined that and met up with a group in Roanoke, Virginia. You know, that that crop from the ground up, from the rank and file, was very powerful um, and also to make happen. But, boy, it was well worth it. There was a, a lot of hours poured into that. But uh, the returns are hard to be seen, though, because how do you put a monetary value on it? This, this latest PV recommendation imposed agreement was better, better than the contract. But is it what makes the working class strong? I don't think so. I think you guys have done a, a, a job that, again, frankly, is thankless at times. Um, I tend to kind of we tend to kind of see things happening before they do. Um, I think that the presidential election of 2024 is going to be very ugly. Um, we are, I mean, I, I was pretty confident that it was going to be Ron DeSantis before this happened. Now that it has happened, it, it leaves absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever. And the fact that Joe did what he did when he could have easily just let the workers and the shareholders duke it out themselves. Instead, he decided that I'm going to adhere to the will of the corporate oligarchs that fund the political machine that is this country. And all to the detriment of people who are just trying to live, who are just trying to live with dignity. And it hurts me to no end because I, I have, uh, you know, working class roots. Uh, I, there was a time in my life where I didn't have much and I, I know what that struggle's like. And just to have a job that makes you feel that you're living in dignity is just so far and few between for so many people today. And for the president to do what he did is just so unforgivable. And the fact that there are so many people that have lined up to defend him, to make it seem like, oh, it's all the GOP's fault. No, he, he didn't have to do anything. It's never needed to happen in the first place. 
And the fact that it did happen, the distrust that labor should have for both parties, quite frankly, yeah. is pretty significant. So my last question to you guys is, what do you expect to happen in 24? Do you think that Biden will be legitimately challenged if he is going to run again in terms of a primary? And do you see a continued uh, growing national labor movement, even in all of the, you know, the ruckus that's going on in terms of this next major election coming up? Well, I, I, I see some hopeful signs uh, within my former union, the BLET. Uh, we are, in fact, it was the BLET president that pretty well led the coalition that, uh, uh, came up with this tentative agreement, which was basically the PEB with uh, a couple of other things thrown in that did absolutely nothing to improve uh, this tentative agreement. But uh, he's no longer with us because the membership threw him out. And I think uh, that tells me that people are starting to pay attention. Uh is Biden going to be challenged? I think he is going to be challenged. Now, if we don't get too deep in the weeds as far as, as oh, God, I'm trying to, I, to, to my way of thinking, economics is the most important thing. And I, I've had this conversation with, with friends of mine in the LGBTQ Q community, uh, in, uh, with people of color, I, I said, you know, I, in politics, you see that these are marginalized groups and, and I tell them, you know, I can't make people like you, but if we do something about your economic situation, it makes a lot of your problems easier to solve. So that's how we build, uh, I, I think movements. Uh, we we get with marginalized. I mean, I, I consider all of us as union members and railroaders um, marginalized. And if we can't see that we've got more in common with uh, uh, people of color and uh, some some of the other marginalized groups, you know, there's no hope for us. And I think that's where our path lies. Yeah, we've always said that we think the common denominator is labor. That's that's the one thing. And it the parties are both failing. You know, I, I look at this and I'm thinking, like, from your perspective, what are workers supposed to do in terms of their political voice? I mean, obviously, the electoral process is only one part of the equation. And it's very sad to me that there aren't more people that are inside that system that are in Congress that are not out there with you guys and speaking out for you. It's bad enough that our president is just like, as somebody just called him a scab, I guess. But like, you know, nobody in the system seems to be helping you in any way. Like, where do you, go, where do you even know who to support? Like wh who, is there anybody that, that helps you? Well, um, what's been fascinating is the degree of solidarity and support that just came pouring out. I, I think it was a shock. Uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in the labor movement and activism for 40 years. And it was surprising to me just, I mean, the um, out 
outpouring of support of just random messages, voicemails, texts, emails, just stating, hey, I'm a retired this, that, or the other. I'm an airline pilot. I'm a teacher. I'm a nurse. I support you guys. Let us know if there's anything we can do. Uh, we didn't even ask people for donations, and they came rolling in. Um, the just incredible uh, statements of support from a number of unions, including the postal workers, the flight attendants, the steel workers, the United Electrical and others, many of this completely unsolicited. And so people are watching and paying attention. Um, when the poop was hitting the fan there right around the first of the month, and it looked like Biden was potentially going to sign a legislation to stop the strike, uh, it, it sort of escalated to the point where dozens and scores of emails uh, and, and donations. Somebody suggested, they said, you guys should do a GoFundMe campaign. We haven't done one with Railroad Workers United now for four or five years. Uh, we set one up December 1st, or I think it was December 2nd. Um, I knew the next morning after it had raised $3,000 overnight, it was going to reach our goal. And we just reached the goal of $25,000. People don't even know who we are, haven't even heard of Railroad Workers United until sometime this past fall. And so there is this huge level of support. Um, rallies broke out independent of the unions and independent of Railroad Workers United even. There was a big rally in Boston of two or 300 people to meet Biden later that week after he signed well, the legislation, I believe it was, uh, protesting his visit to Boston. There was a huge rally in Grand Central Station organized as uh, a great video of dozens and dozens of union workers from different unions speaking. So there is this huge level of support. And I hate to say it, but meanwhile, Liz Schuler, the president of the AFL-CIO, in the heat of the battle, where we were pushing to get these seven days of sick time, literally in the midst of this battle, uh, decided she would finally make a statement, which I believe she hadn't said anything publicly about the railroad workers struggle the entire time, but felt Im Im impulsively stated, why is everybody talking about what's so bad about this contract? I think we need to talk about the good things of this contract. In fact, it's a very good contract. I mean, this is this is kind of unbelievable that we're seeing the lack of support. The higher you get inside the labor movement, inside the established uh, order, and so when change comes, it's going to come. Just like in 1935, the AFL at the time was dead set opposed to organizing uns quote unquote unskilled workers in basic industry. It literally took a fist fight uh, where John L. Lewis uh, punched out, I think, uh, uh, William Green uh, at the convention and took the Committee on Industrial Organization out of the AFL and formed the CIO. And then within a few months, literally millions and millions of workers were organizing in factories all across the country. And I think that's what it's going to take if we wait for the leadership of our unions uh, to decide at this glacial pace that we're going to organize the working class, uh, it's not going to happen. But as we've seen at Starbucks and at uh, Amazon, 
and, and, and all sorts of places where we would not necessarily expect to see workers organizing, they're building independent unions. Now, granted, there's a, a, a lot of people are neophytes and a lot of people uh, lack in experience and lack in financial resources. Uh, um, nevertheless, it's got to be uh, an uprising of millions of workers who, you know, as, as we were talking earlier, need to finally rise up and say enough is enough. We, we simply cannot wait any longer as our country is being hijacked more and more and more uh, by the wealthy. So um, I believe it's going to happen, but I'm not waiting for the Democrats, the Republicans, or actually any political persuasion to lead us. I'm certainly not waiting for corporations and I'm not waiting for union leaders. The liberation of the working class simply has to be the act of the working class itself. Couldn't have said yeah, it better. For and, sure. and, um, I agree entirely. And that's where I found with the um, Railroad Workers United coming together, our inaugural convention and the founding convention, Craft Unity. I, I learned that at the National Labor College with a uh, hazmat um, you know, and then train the trainer, go out and talk to fire departments and police, hazmat derailments. Um, but I learned that more with Railroad Workers United. How do you create this epiphany to make everyone, the working class, understand that it is class conflict that we're dealing with? And we're far stronger if we stick together and preach solidarity rather than partisanship over all these other outside factors. You know, it's yeah. it's so ironic, uh, Ron, that you brought up, and, and a great place to close, you brought up Liz Schuler. Um, you know, even though, you know, she's brand new as the head of the AFL-CIO, and it could have potentially been maybe a watershed moment where she could have done something really great, hmm. but chose not to. You know, when Jen ran for Congress against one of the most anti-labor Democrats, who's Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you know, the biggest obstacle that Jen faced when she ran was not Debbie. It was Dan Reynolds, the head of the Broward County AFL-CIO, who also doubles as the number two in the entire state of Florida as the Treasury Secretary. Now, he was willing to actually break the law, break the bylaws of the union by not granting Jen, who was a viable candidate on the ballot, a screening for endorsement. Okay, he's going to endorse Debbie regardless, obviously. But was willing to prevent having Jen speak to the rank and file of all of the local unions. And why is that? Because Debbie, who was one of, I think, three Democrats at the time that voted to fast track the Trans-Pacific Partnership, why would you ever want to have somebody like that have to go up against a candidate like this who is extremely pro-labor? Because then you'd be putting ideas in people's heads about that you can actually have better things. But the later the, the labor leadership doesn't in many instances have the same interests as those of the rank and file. And that's the major problem of our time. That is the major disconnect that currently exists. How we fight back against that, how we beat that, I'm not entirely sure. But I do think that the more we have these conversations, the more that we cross pollinate, as Jen likes to say, the more we bring these labor centric organizations together that are made aware of it, of, of what's going on, the more that we have sort of this, um, you know, cross channel of ideas. I think that that's what's ultimately going to solve it in the long run. We right? should do it again with the different ones. Yeah. 
We did that at one point. We had like, we had on, who do we, ha- I mean, we had like, it was diff- completely unrelated labor industries all to, like, that was really cool. And we'll keep doing that. And Ron, like you said, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but the more we continue to coalesce, the easier it will be. Sometimes it takes a very, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate circumstance like this in order for people to really wake up and realize that, you know, we really got to get our act together. And it may already be too late, but we have to try. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're extremely grateful that you guys came on this evening. If you have any last thoughts, uh, anything that you're working on, any way that people can get involved. How can people support? I mean, you said you reached your GoFundMe goal. Okay. So you said you reached your your GoFundMe goal, but if there's any way that um, people can still support, I think that the only way we're ever going to really see a general strike is when we have certain safety nets and support systems in place that we don't have in this country. So, you know, in countries like France where they get health care, they can they can strike like we don't have that that here. So if there's any how can people help? is is what i'm saying like you know help support your unions one of the things that uh, i found that helps is get involved with your local labor chapter okay well real real quick um the gofundme has reached its goal uh can you can you hear me Okay. Uh, one one of the things that that we've done around here uh, with our local local labor chapters is we have brought. Um, I, th- I think we've got twenty unions involved, and we've learned a lot from each other. We're supporting right now. We've got the Case New Holland workers in Burlington, Iowa, that have been out for eight months. Um, I I traveled to Racine for the uh, rally that they had for them there. The next day we had a rally in Burlington, Iowa. I I think stuff like that uh, builds a lot of solidarity. We had no political leaders talk talk at this, uh, at either one of the rallies. Um, And, you know, I was a a democratic uh, lawmaker at one time, but now I say that, uh, you know, the, the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is, the Republicans con you into serving them. The Democrats ex- expect you to serve them. And oh, that's good. As close as I can get to uh, uh, truth that, that I could ever speak. So, but uh, I, I think get get involved with your local labor chapters, uh, interact with uh, other unions, and support them whenever you can. Yeah, that's what we do local for sure. Like yeah, when our I, local people go out, we we will go out and march with them. And and one, I agree one, with Jeff. Uh, anything that people can do, anything that that people can do uh, to uh, support, if there's any kind of uh, union organizing in your neck of the woods, join the picket line, uh, express solidarity and support. Specifically for railroad workers, if you're interested in Railroad Workers United and our work, including our uh, recently unveiled campaign for railroad nationalization for public ownership, which we haven't yet talked about, we don't have time, uh, go to our website, railroadworkersunited.org. A pop-up will come up if you want to sign up to get all the news from us on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Uh, You can also donate uh, on that page. We do accept solidarity memberships at a reduced fee uh, from folks outside of the rail industry. 
Um, and, and last but not least, if you're unemployed and looking for an interesting job, uh, consider hire out on the railroad. They are hiring right now. And um, you can work on this struggle from the inside. That's awesome. I'm actually, I, I have to go join that. I need to go join Railroad Workers United. You know, interestingly enough, we always tip our hats um, to the iron workers um, because they were the one local union that was willing to endorse Jen, even yeah. at the risk of severe repercussions, which of course did happen. In yeah, fact, that didn't the, go over well. Well, the one, the one major union here that um, I think Dan Reynolds was afraid of was the firefighters. And he made it very clear um, just for Jen being shown in a social media photograph on their website on a fire truck. And he told them to take that effing photo down. That was the exact words that they used. Take that photo and, down. Yeah. So it, it is a, it's a fight. It's a big fight. But you know what, guys? We're here to fight with you. And, you know, Matt, last word before we go. To remind everyone that we, we work to live, not live to work. And this battle, we saw our brothers and sisters who are suffering – Brothers and sisters and were suffering, not getting days off, not getting time with family. Um, it's time for the working class to stick together, and solidarity is our key for that. Agreed. Thank you all so much for coming on it. And I definitely would love to have you back at some point, um, at least, Ron, if you want to talk about the nationalization of it, because I think that's where it gets all sorts of interesting. And then I'll be called communist Karen and what other other nonsense somebody will throw at me in there. But hey, at this point, you're kind of pushing yourself in that direction. I can't help myself. Like, I, I feel like if I keep getting lefter and lefter by the time I'm like my parents age, you're I think gonna I'm going to fall off the, off the end. <laughs> And anything that's going to work in favor of labor, because as we've talked about, uh, Ron, as we talked about, as I share with everybody, I have met a lot of different people in labor. And I can assure each and every one of you that labor is the great equalizer. You have just as many in, in several unions, whether it's firefighters, whether it's the Teamsters, you have, whether it's the railroad workers, you have just as many Bernie Sanders supporters as you do Donald Trump supporters. And once they are yeah. in a union, all bets are off. Because then it's about a living wage, universal health care, paid sick leave, all the things that universally people agree on. And that's why what you guys do is so vitally important to our future, regardless of what the two political parties, which are just, let's face it, arms of Wall Street and Silicon Valley at this point. Um, we have to do what we can to ensure that you guys are able to not only survive, but thrive. That is our job. Ron Kavankow, Jeff Kurtz, Matt Weaver. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Much respect. Solidarity for Thank sure. You. Bye guys. Have a great new Bye. year, gentlemen. Take we'll care. Thank you. Our pleasure. How fun is that? Uh, this is the type of conversations that really make us, you know, recognize that what we're doing is right. I, and, I have special love for, for railroad in general. Like it's definitely nostalgic. I mean, I wish we had it where it was contemporary more so like other countries do. I mean, that would be nice. Like it would be nice if we could just get, I don't know, rail from West Palm to Orlando. That would be nice. We can't even get to Orlando from here. So Can I mean, we it's also pretty just pathetic. give a really big shout out, particularly to Carla Harrington, um, 
Can't thank you enough for your immense generosity. Seriously, Same. please email us your snail mail address at generationalchange at gmail.com. Everybody's, everybody's contribution obviously matters. Um, Absolutely. Your contribution is obviously tremendous. And, you know, everything that we do here on the show goes towards transforming politics into service. It isn't about, oh, this side's good or that side's bad. No. no, it's about recognizing that this is now more than ever. This is a class war. And we're losing. Well, and now and generational change is going to uh, be, a, what was it? It's like a solidarity member of yes. the Railroad Workers United. So your your money, when you send us stuff like that, that's what we do with it. And we basically spread the love to all different organizations that are fighting the fight. And with all due respect, Dirk Beg left us know, both parties are not the same. No one is saying that they're the same. Republicans are obviously more corporate than Democrats are. But when it comes to workers, they are united and they're united against workers. And that's a fact. Stop straw manning. Yeah. It's unattractive. Doesn't work. So we are in a situation where we have a mm. president who is claiming to represent workers. <laughs> and he doesn't. I think so, Joe. Since, especially considering, I don't think we've seen a president do something so shitty to labor since Reagan. That is. That is okay, so, example. okay. Although, and then this is. Although I would say. It wasn't just one one act, but the things that Clinton did during his administration okay. to labor was a succession of things that ultimately. Right. OK, right. NAFTA. We have. That's so true. OK, that's yeah. true. But just this like one like specific thing that he's doing that is such a fuck you to labor. I can't think of any one instance. Up and he didn't have that's the thing. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to get involved. No, he did because his corporate donors are making him. Well, plus, I don't know how much in charge Joe is anyway. Well, that's who's really that's in charge really up for debate because it sure as hell ain't Mayo Pete over there on the transportation end. I don't know what the hell his job is for. Uh, there's rumblings now that Joe Biden is going to get a primary challenger. Uh, Do we know by whom? Who? You know. Oh, whatever. Good luck to that. So if that's going to actually amount to anything, I don't know. We'll see if it ultimately comes to fruition. Whatever. But what you really need, if you're going to have anything, is have a real labor rally. And that's kind of our fight. You know, uh, you know, to me, that that really is what it's about. Uh, if you guys do like our content and appreciate the work that we're trying to do here, which is transforming politics into service, we would obviously appreciate if you would become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as five dollars a month. And this is the holiday season. If you are feeling a little extra special, you know, maybe you got a really big gift card and you're figuring out how to use it. Maybe this would be a great way to, to do it. Just a thought. Uh, but if you are feeling a little extra generous, $10 a month patrons will get the Lulu sticker and the Mansion Parliamentarian bumper sticker. Lord knows it's only in just a few days. It's only a year away from 2024. And we're already thinking about what it's going to be. Well, that's Jen's pick. That is not necessarily pick. mine. But, you know, if you are feeling extra special. $25 patrons will get the tri-blend. Generational change. Here comes some t-shirt. Jer jersey. It's a jersey. Jersey. Baseball jersey. It's a baseball jersey. It's really awesome. Yeah. Just Jen. Just Jen. So if you can support, that would obviously be tremendously appreciated. With that said, what do we have please go. Oh, to, you have more? Yes. Go to Cash App, dollar sign, Jen Change. 
if you are so inclined to contribute, but don't want to get caught up in the whole idea of giving being your a subscriber personal information and having it be checked constantly. I know, you know? but if you're a subscriber, I feel like if I could build up a good amount of subscribers, we could really have like a nice little community because I'm totally happy to communicate with people on Patreon and uh, on Patreon. And I would be very hip to having monthly member meetings. I tried doing it, but nobody showed up. Um, so I kind of feel like I, I would members. love, yeah, I, I would love. And, and if you guys do go on there and you do join, I do read the messages on there. I am actually the person who oversees our small, our small Patreon. Um, look, I'd love to get to a place where we're just so over, overcome with members that I have to actually have help. Um, yeah, that but would right be now, really but right now it's just me. So if you have things that you want to see or suggestions, you know, I'm definitely more inclined to listen to somebody who's a patron. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Then a non-patron. But no, in, in seriousness, if you guys really have any suggestions, anybody can reach out generationalchange at gmail.com. If there's a subject matter you think, um, somebody that you're interested in, a book you read, anything, you know, I'm very up for suggestions. Yes. But we, we have a lot of stuff lined up. Peter's been very busy. Yes, we do. Uh, we are going to ring in the new year with Jesse Ventura's son, Tyrell. It'll Don't be a great it. conversation. Tyrell Ventura is going to be here. Um, yes. And I haven't checked out their Substack. I need to do so. But um, they're always working on good stuff over there. Uh. For those of you wondering, I'm just going to let you guys know, it is, uh, the person who is potentially going to be running for president in a primary against Joe Biden is Marianne Williamson. Take with that what you will. Uh, we'll see what happens. As far as I'm concerned, if uh, she does not run an unabashed pro-labor campaign, then it's dead on arrival. But what Joe did does create an opening for somebody to go right in on the labor movement, which is where it needs to be anyway. So we'll see. Uh, but I think if one person gets in, I can see that ultimately resulting in more people getting in. That I think, would you say that that's probably possible? I sure as hell hope so, if that's the menu. Well, hopefully the menu gets bigger. We don't uh. need one that is going to be over very fast. We need one where there's a lot of ideas. Uh, I think there's a lot of pros to Marianne. I think there's cons as well. I could it say do depends. your research, people. Dig, yes. a, dig a little bit beyond the surface before you- But it's also decide. very important to realize that Joe Biden should not be able to skate to the nomination because if he does, it's going to be very ugly and He already just skated to where he is now. Oh, like on, he man. already skated there. What, how else do you think? Man. He barely won during a pandemic no, against no, no, Donald no, no, no. Trump. Good God. If that, like, that is not a sign of somebody who can, who can really hit a second term. It's just not, you barely win against Donald Trump in a pandemic. And you somehow think that being a mediocre at best, anything, I don't even know if I would say that, like, and in what universe does that get someone reelected? It's, it was completely different with Trump when he was president and didn't have really a primary challenge because Trump was, as up until the pandemic, he was extremely popular in his party and extremely popular with independents. Yeah, all the suburban liberals and Democrats hated his guts, but it's, that much, doesn't like, matter to it's them. much like Ron DeSantis. DeSantis doesn't care if Democrats hate him. No. He just cares if independents like him and Republicans love him, and he has that on lock. That's a good point, so Chris. That's you're a very good point. He didn't skate. He couldn't have stood upright enough to skate. He, he never actually left his basement. So it is what it is. <laughs> He's just sitting so, there on some sort of life support. So if you're ultimately going to, uh, you know what, Double K, that could very well be the real, uh, I guess what you would call wild card. Because I could see that happening. Well, and therein is probably the only way 
that someone like Joe would skate by again or sneak through crazy, again. And the crazy thing is, is that that would, country, ha- that would happen. But I, I will say this. This is the type of country that is aching for something else. And just the thought of Trump potentially running as an independent with regardless of all of his baggage, it's going to be like Ross Perot all over again, only we're living in an age today where if you guys also want yeah. to see sort of like a test case of where that could potentially be very interesting is what ends up happening in Arizona with Kirsten Cinema. Carrie Lake is very likely going to run for the U.S. Senate. Ruben Gallego, they've been floating his name on the Democratic side. He is relatively progressive, I would, especially for Arizona for the most part. But ultimately, is is that going to be a three-way race where it's the Democrat, Republican, and an independent? I don't. I just I think Cinema loses because she's not popular. She there. probably does, but that also very likely puts Carrie Lake in the Senate as well. So maybe that was like the, the plan whole, all along. Because the truth is, is that Kirsten Cinema has been acting like someone who does not care about whether or not she's reelected. She is not popular in Arizona. Emerald, here's what I would say regarding Newsom. I think that if, let's I agree. just say that if if Marianne gets any type of momentum and it looks like that it might be a race where a poll comes out and it shows that she's got 25 to 30% of the vote, then I could easily see Newsom getting in much like Bobby Kennedy got in against Lyndon Johnson in 68. Remember, it was initially Eugene McCarthy who was running against LBJ, and then Bobby decided to get in the race, and that's when all hell broke loose. So I could definitely see a circumstance where something like that could happen. Uh, Will it happen? I don't know. Uh, On January 4th, we're having one of Jen's, speaking of which, uh, a particular guest that you're really looking forward to having on the show. The Kush Queen is coming. Kush Queen, Olivia Alexander. The Kush Queen is coming. I feel like that that commercial with the cats when like the queen is coming from like mm-hmm. Princess Diaries. I feel like I should do that. And it's like the Kush Queen. I mean, that pleases me to no end. Oh, and our coming on, I'll give you guys one. For the last time of the year, since this is the end of the year. This is the end of quite the year. A year, hasn't it? Okay, so we have Ty coming on Monday. We have Kush Queen on well, next sorry, Wednesday. Well, left in here, I don't think. No, you probably have to fill it. And then on Monday, January 9th, we will have on Ariana Peckery who was part of corporate media, has stepped down, was basically a whistleblower, and has a lot of interesting things to say. I think you guys will really enjoy that, if you are familiar. And then we are ultimately going to have Jordan Chariton back on the podcast. Uh, he is uh, obviously with Status Quo, writing a book. We're going to talk about that. Um, some other I guests that we're hoping that to today. get. Oh, that's very sweet. I know. Picture of Jordan. And so uh, just be aware of that. And if you guys... Oh, good God. That was not good. No, because it's all ash. I told you you need to fill it. <laughs> told you. Thanks for killing me, Jen. I told you you need to fill it. Yeah. Whatever, dude. Yeah, don't, don't, you realize it's, it's bad. It's, it's very bad. No, I'm not, I'm not anti-drug. <coughs> yeah. I have no Well, that's like ash everywhere. I know, dude. Why did, <laughs> I told you you need that's to fill it. That's why I don't it. smoke. No, I told you you need to fill it. Well, I mean, if I don't drink, I mean, I guess I've got a couple of things. Oh, yeah, you're a whole lot of fun. Point. No, seriously. This one's a whole party and a half. Eh, it tastes like crap. But oh, that said, um, it's been quite the year. So we um, have a lot of good stuff coming we up. We do. And we hope you guys have enjoyed it. Obviously, uh, 
to those of you who celebrated Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah. Those who celebrated Christmas, Merry Christmas. For those of you who are here on our Festivus, thank you for coming. Well, of course, we always celebrate Festivus. Everybody should celebrate Festivus. That should be a holiday. I don't really do any holidays. I, I, some, some years I'll host a winter solstice for my girlfriends. That's nice. Yeah. It's my husband calls it like the coven meeting, but kind of, I guess, whatever. But we're obviously very grateful for each and every one of you. If, um, Nothing else. It's been quite an unfortunate year, uh, one that has uh, had a lot of uh, downs. I think we I think we say that every year, by the way. And I don't by we I don't mean you and me. I mean, just like in general, we always say, oh, it's been such a hard year. You know, every year is a hard year. 20. Okay, I get that was the year like the covid year. So, yeah, that was exceptionally hard, especially for students and people. But like other than that type of thing where we were people in quarantine, every year is kind of not a great year for most people. That's the class war. That's the whole point of it. If the years were good, then we wouldn't be sitting here. If the years were good, then I wouldn't feel the need to like, you know, have ever run for Congress. That's true. So the whole point is, is that things are not good. That's why we're here. I wish things were good. And if things were good, then I would honestly, I would really, I would just go, I'd live in the little mountains in my little, I might have like a tiny house in the woods, you know, minding my business. Matt, thank I, you. Very, very. And it, make sure you subscribe on YouTube. YouTube is where it's at. Yeah. I mean, look, I would really appreciate it if things would just be good. I would even be happy if I had a representative that was at least fighting for things to be good, even though things aren't good. I could still, that would still be better. Like that would be something. I don't understand. Are there any congressional people? Are there any representatives that have been out like standing with the railroad workers? Well, probably not to the degree that they need to be at this point. Well, it sounds to me that the degree is, is that the railroad workers need to have one union. That's what it sounds like to me. Oh, I, I would agree that, with that. That seems to be a problem. 12 unions is one, two. Well, that and what he was just saying, what Ram is just saying is yeah. they have 12 clubs. They have 12 yeah. railroad clubs and not really a union. And that's really, the, and you know yeah. what? That was just proven. The fact that, that our president said, eh, no strike for you. Um, yeah, the whole point of a strike is not asking for permission. That's what I think is missing. And, and part of that, as I always say, is that we have no social safety net. People have no resources to strike. If you go out on strike, you're screwed. I think the more you talk about labor, the more you talk about the importance of making that the central focus and not being distracted by things that are not going to be easily fixed or corrected. You know, it's kind of like, Everyone, everyone wants to talk about the libs of TikTok and, and the crap that she says on TV. Um, I know. don't even follow this. Uh, what Greta Thunberg and Andrew Tate are talking about. Yeah, that's not interesting. Anything yeah. that is going to distract from core issues of the things that we're fighting for, we're all fighting for, if we're not all fighting for, we should be all fighting for collectively. Okay, so I did have a tidbit of interesting information when I was going to tell you that I was watching PBS and the, I forget, it might have, it was it was uploaded today, guys, so PBS NewsHour. Um, there was a segment where, and I can never remember her name, the, the lady on the PBS NewsHour, was talking to three people from three different states regarding legalization of cannabis in their respective states. One state, like I, it was like Michigan was one of them and one of them was Oklahoma and states that are at various stages. And what's so interesting is Michigan is like out earning and out making, like Michigan is raking in the bucks was the point of this that I, this is what I got from this, is this story is that Michigan is like ringing in the money and yet Flint doesn't have clean water. 
So this is what I'm not understanding because- But don't you want Gretchen Whitmer to be president? No, but what this is something where I can point this out. This is not the work of the cannabis people, okay? Because if it were up to the cannabis people, the people in Flint, Michigan would have clean water. The cannabis people. So this is what's very frustrating. So they're profiting off of this industry at like record numbers in terms of their government, their infrastructure, all this. And yet they still don't give clean water to their people. That's disgusting. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. So yay, Michigan, record cannabis profits. Tell you, one, one fun job. If, if I could be like a labor rallier, more or less like a labor spokesperson, just for everybody, I would do that in a second. Talk to Linda Joseph. I'm sure she'd ha hire, have you come work with her. We'd go around the whole country. Although nobody does a rally like Linda. No, Linda's great. <laughs> but being able to rally, uh, I think you found, I think, I think Double K needs help, Jen. Oh my God, that's horrible. That's horrible. Double K. And it's really interesting to me that she lives in the same state as Harvey K. And he has an E at the end of his name, but yeah. that's just the thing. That's so sad. I have to travel 90 minutes to get weed? That's unfortunate. Yeah. I don't think there's a law currently about, well, is it? What? Is it decriminalized in what? Wisconsin? I don't know. It might, I don't know if it's decriminalized in Wisconsin. We have to find that out. Michigan in, in, is definitely that could a be good a, place. That'd be a good, great Christmas present for Double K. I can't send, well, sending is a whole other story. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are there. That, well, there's rules there, man. <laughs> there's rules. That's the rules. Damn, man. Now, if only Joe. That's the federal thing, man. Yeah. That's the rules. Hey, you think you think if Bernie was president, he wouldn't have decriminalized? He, oh, he would have he would have already expunged and pardoned. and There are certain things that we can say. You know, you, you always say, oh, you say that, but you don't ever know. And that's the truth. You don't really know. But there are certain things that I have a certain amount of confidence that Bernie would have definitely done had he been the person sitting there. Um, that is one of them. <clears throat> he would have absolutely decriminalized cannabis, taken it off as a schedule one. And um, he would have definitely, like there's, he would have pardoned um, all of those people, all of the, the cannabis people. Oh, no, don't put on that. Oh, you're bringing in that idiot? Not this doofus. Oh, good God. Look, I just, I, you know, look, it's past my bedtime, but I just want to come on here and let you know that I don't give a damn about them workers. Yeah, clearly. No, you not, just screwed them. No, they, they, hey, what's that smell? That smells really good. Ah. I don't know if you're talking about the weed or my hair, but either way, you're no, creepy. No, no, keep that away. That's illegal. You can't, you can't, you can't smoke there. That's bad stuff. Stay in school, man. Stay away from my hair. No, stay in school. Look, so hear, gross. Hear the facts, Jack. We're not actually solving problems. We're keeping it status quo. That's what we're doing. Not, not that we're trying to hurt you. You just do edibles, Double K. I Very interesting. really, really, I really messed up, didn't I? Yeah, I kind of did. I don't know what to do. Uh, but I'm going to run for president again. It's yeah, that's just friggin' great. Isn't that great? No, I'm it's not, win. Joe. Go away, sleepy Joe. Go take a nap. Get out of here, man. Go take Come a nap. now. I feel like if I just turn something back here, he'll just go to sleep. I'm tired. Go. And you should be too. Ugh. But great to see you all. And you're going to vote for me again, you know. The hell I yeah. will. The hell I will, Joe. I got hairy legs. Ugh. Really hairy. So gross. They turn blonde in, in the summer, in the light. Isn't that great? I'm going to so That's gross. what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I hadn't been on the show in a while, and I want to come on and say hi. Ugh, Joe, go away. How do you think you're going to stop me? You don't know Joe. 
Well, as of right now, there is nobody that's going to stop you in our party, but, right. but you're going to, you're cause I'm great. No, but I do think you're, you will lose to DeSantis if it's you. Who? Yeah. You know, you know who oh, I'm that guy. About. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Well, he's young enough to be my son. Can you believe that? That guy going to be president? Well, here's to a terrible 22 and an even more terrible 23. Ugh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Corn Pop was a bad dude. Corn Pop. <laughs> yeah. So ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Like this whole state is the whole state of affairs is ridiculous. That is the president of the United States. Mayo Pete is the secretary of transportation. Amy Coney Island is on the Supreme Court and can't name the five freedoms granted by the First Amendment. This is not a good situation. Hey, at in. least you've got Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. I am. In that case, you're I, living the good life. It's just not. It's not. By the way, good. Warren Buffett's, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, biggest. Um, well, we pardon. definitely heard how the railroad workers feel about him. Okay, so apparently. We're gonna. There are no good billionaires, so people. I'm not gonna. We're, we're not gonna say as of yet because this happened way too late. Um, but we're gonna kick off the new year with whether it's gonna be like a new kind of topic. Oh my Isn't, god, this guy! Face. Yeah, gotta love that face. Right? That doesn't even look real. No, he's real. That's just a glass eye. Uh, oh, he's got a glass eye. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> just so you guys know, this. Are you going to share that? This is what you guys need to see this yeah, guy. Gonna, but what's this about? So this is this is like Warren Buffett's second in command person. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Warren Buffett's second in command wants you to know that you should stop complaining, says billionaire investor Charlie Munger. <laughs> Everybody's five times better off than they used to be. Five times. Five maybe. times. Five times better off. And you're times. and you're five hundred times better off than anybody. Except for look at what he looks like. Well, he's ninety eight years old. Oh God. And he's still going. Go away, Charlie. Can't take your money with you. He'll be going soon enough. Imagine that. Imagine being at that age, knowing that at any minute you could be dead. And he's like, fuck all you. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Well, that's how I feel. That's the same as like the Koch brothers or any of those people. These are these are sociopathic people. They are. That's a sociopath. He even yeah. looks like a sociopath. Yeah. Well, he's not human. Uh, billionaire Charlie Munger thinks we should all be a lot happier. Munger, the longtime investment partner and friend of fellow billionaire Warren Buffett, who hates workers, says he doesn't understand why people today aren't more content with what they have, especially compared to harder times throughout his. <sighs> Shut up and eat your gruel and you'll like it. Good God in heaven. Got to come up with something good for him to start. the. New oh, year. my goodness. Got to come up with something good. Oh, my. How dare you people expect things? <laughs> Get down there and shine my shoes. Something along those lines. And then people wonder like why there's like why this can get violent. Or or someone like Nancy Pelosi wonders why someone would break into her house. Guys, we need to unite labor. labor. This is not gonna happen through you know the, the squad, Green Party. Yeah, the squad's <laughs> not gonna do this. The Green Party ain't gonna the do Green it. The Green Party ain't doing it. Movement for Whatever party. None of the none of the individual factions can do this. Not DSA, not any of that can end it. Like it's just not gonna happen that way. Yeah. It has to be one effort, and the only unifying factor is labor. That is the unifying factor. Because this is a class war. 
It really is. I know. It's a, it's a total class war. And so for New Year's, remember. I don't do resolutions. Uh, well, I'm not saying it has to be a resolution, but just what you should be preparing for in 2023. Excuse me. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. For 2023, the movement for labor must take the next step. Yeah, guys, if you pay attention where you live um, for Starbucks, for for if you live near an Amazon center or any place that's in the process of trying to unionize and be there and, and show up for them, literally, physically, it's important. A re- it is important. Very important. Like if you, you know, and I know it's hard for people to even know about these things. That's part of it. Like we happen to know because we happen to know when there's going to be this particular protest. Yeah. But it's hard for people to even know. But it's just it's really important. It is. So keep fighting the good fight to all of you guys. Colinello, Chris, Double K, Dirtbag Leftist, all of you guys. Carla Harrington, obviously. Carrie, Cap- Everybody, Capitola, you guys were really appreciative. Matt, Emerald, all of you guys, it's very, very appreciated. <laughs> Declan. Yeah, well, he Declan is a, got himself blocked tonight. Good, good, uh, good luck because we tried putting him in a timeout, but it wasn't working, so yeah, he got he blocked. He just wasn't listening. He wasn't <laughs> taking advice. He couldn't get it, and he didn't. I've think told it was him, serious. do not be nasty about our guests, dude. You want to, especially you know, about labor guys. Yeah, no, get go that. away. You're out. Go away. You can't be mean to my guests. So, with that said. Much appreciation to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Have a very happy new year and we'll see you Monday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.